as we talked about, there are no nutrients that humans cannot get in animals that are in plants. There are no unique nutrients to plants. I mean, people would say vitamin C and I would say, no, that's not true. There's plenty of vitamin C in animals. If you are protein restricting and eating carbohydrates, you are triggering mTOR more than your protein. I would argue that the, the best strategy is, is carbohydrate restriction rather than yeah. protein restriction. Yeah. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host Seamland and our guest today is Paul Saladino. Paul is a certified functional medicine practitioner and MD. He's a physician and a proponent of the carnivore diet. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, you've, been, you've been a really kind of a rising superstar in the carnivore diet world. <laughs> These different podcasts. So I thought I'm going to have to get you on my own podcast as well. <laughs> it's been a fun, it's been a fun thing recently. We'll have to talk about my journey in carnivore. But yeah, it's been, it's been really exciting recently. Lots of, lots of great conversations on podcasts and lots of fun interactions and stuff. Lots of things yeah, going on. Sure. Uh, but uh, how did you get involved uh, with the carnivore diet as an MD? So, you know, I think it's basically what happened is that I've been thinking about this since medical school. So I'm in the last few months of my residency in psychiatry at the University of Washington. Psychiatry is a four-year residency after your four years of medical school. So I got my MD in 2015 and in a few months in June, I'll be done with residency in psychiatry. And since medical school, I've sort of been thinking about what makes people sick and what makes them well. And I've always been interested in the root cause of illness rather than just using medications to ameliorate symptoms. That paradigm has always frustrated me so much, but that is really the way that traditional medicine does things. And it's not, I don't think it's a characterological flaw of any of the physicians that are in medicine. It's just the paradigm and the way we're taught. We're not often taught in medicine to think of the root cause of an illness. But that's always been something that was fascinating to me. And I was always drawn to those ideas. And so I've been thinking about diet, especially because we put so much food in our bodies. We put kilogram quantities of food in our bodies. And the idea that diet could leverage health or disease was always so interesting to me. So I've always been interested in whenever I see clear connections or uh, correlations between different ways of eating and resolution or worsening of diet, that's fascinating. And being a physician, one of the things that's been hard for me is that a lot of the treatments we use in Western medicine don't work very well. Again, they're sort of pharmaceuticals aimed at ameliorating symptoms, and they don't even work that well, usually because they have side effects and other problems. But what I noticed in the last year or so with the carnivore diet was so intriguing. It was resolution of autoimmune disease, which is traditionally incredibly difficult to treat with this type of diet. Now, we can talk about this as well. This isn't the only type of diet that anecdotally has been shown to improve autoimmune disease. And I think the fact that diet, whether it's a vegan diet or a carnivore diet or whatever type of diet can influence autoimmune disease, I think is a valuable thing. And I think it's interesting to study how each one can improve that and the long-term potential or long-term safety of each one of those diets. But, you know, I had experimented and sort of researched vegan diets previously, and I wasn't so excited about the longevity of those and the long-term nutrient sustainability of vegan diets. And so when I saw that carnivore diets were improving autoimmunity, I thought that is a really interesting hypothesis. The idea that something about eating animals, whether people are eating just meat or eating nose to tail, the latter strategy would be something that I would advocate rather than the former. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's good to just eat meat. 
um, was improving autoimmunity would seem to suggest that plants might be triggering autoimmunity, which is such a radical concept, you know, because within the functional medicine space, within the alternative health space, most people would say the complete opposite. You know, they would say, you need to eat lots of plants to be healthy. You need to eat the rainbow. You need plants to improve the quality of your gut flora. Mm. And so I was so intrigued by this concept that I had to just dive into it. And it's been such an interesting journey. And it's, a, it's been a journey of discovery for me. And then for the last six months, I've been strictly nose to tail carnivore myself. And it's been an awesome experience. Right. Yeah, it is so true that uh, most people don't pay that much attention to uh, what they eat and their yeah. food their food is actually one of the my, most mo, mo, most uh, you know frequent things people get exposed to aside from like air and water <laughs> people hey, eat I, exactly kilogram quantities you know yeah, we yeah. we can affect human physiology profoundly with milligram or microgram quantities of of pharmaceutical molecules but we are putting in kilogram quantities. I mean, this is multiple orders of magnitude greater. We're putting in kilogram quantities of food molecules in our bodies. And as we'll talk about, some of these food molecules are often plant toxins or plant pesticides or lectins. And we don't even think in Western medicine that those could be affecting us negatively. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely ingesting, you know, gram, mm -hmm. milligram to gram quantities of plant pesticides and things like that. We don't even think about that. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's wild. Right. So what kind of examples can you give? Like these, uh, you mentioned these plant uh, compounds that are causing like an autoimmune response in some people. Yeah. So, I, you know, at this point, it's, it's mostly hypothesis, but um, because, you know, the Western traditional medicine hasn't really studied this formally, but it seems to be an interesting hypothesis with a lot of anecdotal evidence and it's gathering so much weight. But the overarching idea is that when we're eating, you know, I mean, how much food do people eat a day? Probably two kilograms generally, depending, you know, when we're eating, who, who knows how many of those plants, how much of that is plants, but when we're eating, you know, two to three pounds of food a day or whatever, you know, we're getting, you know, grams of these molecules in plants. So the overarching idea is plants don't want to die either. You know, animals can run away from people. Animals have defense mechanisms called mobility or antlers, or teeth, or claws, um, or, or they just, they can move, you know, if it's a zebra or whatever, they can just run away. They're, they're faster than humans and we have to sneak up on them, right? Or elephants are huge and they can move away from humans. But plants are rooted in space. And so for the entire evolution of plants, of this, this whole kingdom of life on earth, the plant kingdom, plants have evolved, and this is not conjecture, this is science, this is botany, you know, this is plant biochemistry, plants have evolved chemicals to deter animals from eating them. And whether those animals are primates, whether those animals are humans, whether those animals are herbivorous animals, they, they, there's this constant struggle between plants and animals around the presence of these anti-nutrients, and then the animals can evolve potential ways to detoxify, or the animals know intuitively somehow that they can't eat so much of this one plant and they can only eat so much and then they move along to another plant because if they eat too much of one plant they'll get sick and the animals have this sort of innate knowledge because they've been doing this their whole lives and they're mm. through evolution this has been passed down and they have these mechanisms they listen to where they i mean you see this with like um grazing cattle or grazing sheep if they're allowed to graze on an open pasture that's large and they're not held in a small area they will eat a small amount of one plant 
and then go to a small amount of another plant and a small amount of another plant. But if they're forced to graze on just one plant, they won't do as well and they will stop eating mm -hmm. that plant because they're getting, um, in terms of animal agriculture studies, I've heard this on another podcast, this, um, this gentleman named, uh, I think it's Fred Dispenza, um, was studying them and these the sheep would actually get nauseous. They knew that if they kept eating a small, uh, this bud of a plant, they would get nauseous and they, they, I would tell them, stop eating it. You know, mm. you've eaten too much. So the, the animals have evolved these like really intricate, delicate mechanisms to say, I can eat so much of that and then I'm going to get, it's, the toxin is going to get to be too much. It's deterring me from eating it. But there are all of these plant toxins. And that's what people don't realize is that plants are full of toxins. Right. And so if you, if you dig into it, you know, if you look at the human, the human, I would say the human palette of plants or the, the amount of plants that you can get in a grocery store, almost every single plant in there is going to have some sort of toxin in it. And the question is whether or not one human is going to be more or less sensitive. And there are many things that are toxic about plants. So at the first level, we can just think about plant pesticides. These are naturally occurring pesticides that the plant makes, right? These are not pesticides that are added to the plant. That's a whole separate mm. thing. You know, that's like Roundup and glyphosate. That's a small amount of the pesticides that humans are, in, are ingesting. Over 99.9% .9 of the plants, of the pesticides that people are ingesting are from the plants themselves. And if you look at, generally, like a westernized human, in the daily diet, it's estimated that humans are ingesting 1.6 grams of plant pesticides, mm -hmm. which is colossally more than the exogenous pesticides like glyphosate. So mm -hmm. here we get into that ratio again. Like we are ingesting gram quantities of pesticides that are certainly affecting human biochemistry. And for instance, if you look at cabbage, it's a good example. Cabbage is a brassicate vegetable derived from ancestral or ancient mustard. People believe that uh, mustard was the original, you know, the, it's this mustard family. Mm -hmm. So the mustard plant is the same genus or um, <clears throat> as, uh, it's the brassica. So it's the same genus as um, uh, kale, cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels mm. sprouts, all these brassica vegetables. And you can still get mustard plants. But this original plant has been studied. And if you look at it, there, there are many pesticides. There's a great paper by Bruce Ames called Dietary Pesticides, 99.9% .9 natural. And there's a figure in there that shows 42 plant pesticides in cabbage alone. And these have not been studied for either teratogenicity, that is the ability to cause cancer in humans, or <clears throat> the, the other collateral effects they may be having on human biochemistry. They're starting to be studied now. And one of the ones in that list is a precursor to a molecule that's thought to be healthy for humans, which is sulforaphane. So this gets into this whole compound. So as we get a little more granular, one of the, one of the families of plant pesticides in cabbage are called glucosinolates. Now glucosinolates includes glucoraphanin. Glucoraphanin is the precursor molecule to sulforaphane. And this is actually a plant pesticide. And I think many people don't realize this. Mm. So the way that this works is that glucoraphanin is a molecule that exists in many brassica vegetables like mustard. But glucoraphanin is not the same as sulforaphane because, um, and I'll tell you why. Sulforaphane is so oxidatively stressful to the plant that if sulforaphane existed, many botanists feel that the plant would not be able to live. It's too mm. stressful. It's too 
um, it's too oxidatively reactive, meaning it will move electrons around. It'll steal electrons or donate electrons to other molecules so avidly. So this gets into like organic chemistry and the, the oxidative uh, activity of any molecule. But glucoraphanin is a more stable molecule than sulforaphane. So the plant appears to hold this glucoraphanin molecule in a more stable state. Mm-hmm. But there's also this enzyme called myrosinase. And myrosinase will convert glucoraphanin to sulforaphane how do those two get together? Only when the plant is chewed. Mm. So when we cut the plant or when the plant is chewed, the myrosinase combines with glucoraphin and then it makes sulforaphane. So it's like this a defense, is, defense mechanism. Yeah. Exactly. This is the plant saying, if you chew me, I will make this molecule which will be toxic to you. Mm-hmm. So this is, the, this is a great misunderstanding of this molecule. This molecule is probably an $80 million industry every year in the supplement industry. We are giving people a plant pesticide. Mm-hmm. And it's been studied and touted by people like Rhonda Patrick as super beneficial because in some studies it is shown to have a hormetic effect. And we can talk about hormesis, right? Mm-hmm. And one of my fears is that we are conflating the idea of hormesis of plant molecules with overall net benefit to humans. We are sort of becoming myopic and looking at these molecules and saying, hey, we can point to one benefit, which may be a hormetic benefit, and I'll explain what hormesis is and all this in a second, but we're missing the fact that because these molecules are from a different operating system, they're from a plant kingdom operating system, they often almost, they almost, you know, almost universally have collateral damaging effects in the human, in the human body and in the biochemistry. So I'll back up and explain hormesis and why sulforaphane has been confused as a beneficial molecule. So hormesis is the process, uh, is the idea that a small amount of something that is slightly toxic can be good for you because your body adjusts to it and becomes stronger. We see examples of this that are um, in, in our daily lives and things like exercise and UV light. We know that exercise is good for humans, but it's a stressor. And we know that too much exercise can kill us. If we just go to the gym and lift weights all day long, dawn to dusk, all night, like you will, you will eventually break, right? This is right. a stressor. And there's, so there's a sweet spot. You know, we would call it a U-shaped curve or something. You know, mm-hmm. no exercise. Humans aren't going to be very healthy. We need to move. We need to exercise, whether it's resistance training or cardiovascular training, whatever. Too much exercise, we're going to get overtrained. We're going to, get, we're going to have major problems. Sunlight is another great example. We know that humans need ultraviolet light to do a number of things, whether it's to make vitamin D or other things that ultraviolet light makes in the skin, like nitric oxide or beta endorphin. But we also know that too much vitamin D can increase your risk for certain cancers, like squamous and basal cell cancer, and that you can get a sunburn and your skin peels off. And we know that you know, UV light also causes some mild DNA damage in the skin. So there's clearly a sweet spot for ultraviolet light. Mm-hmm. And you, we, you know, we need ultraviolet light. If we don't have ultraviolet light, we will die. We need to make vitamin D in the skin and these other compounds as well. So there's examples of hormetic things. People even believe that radiation can be a hormetic right. because we are constantly exposed to these gamma waves from the universe coming through the, you know, the, the atmosphere. And so um, one of my colleagues is a radiologist and he was saying, you know, I mean, a small amount of radiation probably isn't a bad thing. It, it triggers molecular mechanisms and mechanisms in humans. And this is probably the amount of radiation we're getting just living on the planet. You know, we are mm, exposed mm, to radiation. Right. It's not that people should go out and have x-rays. So, so do you get like a hormetic benefit from uh, eating those, uh, let's say, pesticides and uh, phytonutrients? 
people could argue, that's the argument around sulforaphane, mm-hmm. is that there are studies that show, and this is the other misunderstanding with these plant molecules, there are studies that show that when people eat broccoli sprouts, there is decreased DNA damage. And I will, I will connect those dots for people. So what happens when you eat sulforaphane? Sulforaphane, like many of these plant pesticides or many of these molecules in plants, is, oxida- is an oxidative stressor, meaning it comes into the body and it's going to be a molecule that's going to create other, it's going to create oxidation in other molecules or it's going to reduce other molecules by uh, changing electron statuses. So it's going to create free radicals. And a molecule is coming into our bodies and it's an oxidative stress, it's going to create other free radicals and it can create chains of free radical reactions, which is generally something that's damaging. But our body sees that immediately. It says that's an oxidative stressor and it immediately detoxifies it. When sulforaphane comes into the body, it's immediately detoxified. Mm-hmm. One of the conventional misunderstandings around these molecules, and I think this is due to the supplement industry's sort of propaganda, is that these molecules do not participate directly in human biochemistry. They are not used as antioxidants in the human body. There is no sulforaphane floating around in the human body doing antioxidant functions. It's mm-hmm. actually doing the reverse. It's being, an, it's being a pro-oxidant. Mm-hmm. But plant molecules that are touted as antioxidants don't do that. There are ellagic acid is not floating around in the human body scavenging electrons. That happens in the human body with our molecules. It's our mm-hmm. operating system doing that, specifically right. molecules like glutathione. But when this is where the hormesis comes in. When we ingest sulforaphane, it's immediately detoxified. It's often conjugated to glucuronide or other things. It can be conjugated to glutathione, and it's excreted. But because it's noted to be an oxidative stressful, an oxidatively stressful molecule, it activates a system in the body called the NRF2 pathway in the liver. The mm-hmm. NRF2 pathway says you need to make more glutathione because you just ingested an oxidative stress. Right. And so then our body makes more glutathione which is beneficial in the short term. And that increased glutathione from the sulforaphane leads to less DNA damage overall. So that's the concept of hormesis. Mm-hmm. Where, this, where we have gone wrong with this idea is by imagining that that is the only thing that is happening, that is only good coming from sulforaphane, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is that these are different operating system and sulforaphane does get absorbed a little bit. And before it can be detoxified and excreted, it, other, it does other things which are not good in our bodies it acts more like a computer virus. So mm-hmm. it's doing, it, it does have a hormetic effect because it is a stressor, but it also does other bad things. And if we look at plant molecules, this is the pattern we will see. In the case of sulforaphane, it competes with iodine at the level of the thyroid and can induce hypothyroidism. So this is not a good thing. Right. It actually circulates in the blood and competes with iodine at the level of thyroid. So what we are doing is we are ingesting something called a goitrogen. And if people look online, they'll see this is very widely publicized. This whole family of compounds, the glucosinolates, isothiocyanates, glucoraphanin, sulforaphane, these are goitrogens. The way these molecules are stressful to animals is by creating hypothyroidism. So the idea that humans should be eating tons of broccoli sprouts is not evolutionarily consistent at all. The mechanism by which sulforaphane induces hormesis or Uh, increase in glutathione is not unique to sulforaphane. We can get all the glutathione we need by living a healthy life, by being, getting enough UV light, by doing exercise. We don't need sulforaphane to have completely adequate and healthy levels of glutathione in our bodies. It's being sold 
as a beneficial thing because it will increase glutathione. But what your people are not being told is that it would also decrease your thyroid and cause problems with that. And that if you eat too much, it will spill over and become an oxidative stress. Right. So that's, <laughs> think, the, that's the total misunderstanding. Yeah, it's like the kind of tendency of humans is to uh, go, go into the rabbit hole of more is better always. And uh, <laughs> everything from calories, everything from uh, antioxidants, all those supplements, the, 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 the kind of the beneficial hormetic effect is always in the dose. And with hormesis, more isn't like necessarily better. Like you said, exercise, too much exercise can kill you. And uh, too much sulforaphane is not going to be good either. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, good, a good example of, um, although it does have like a negative effect, in in like small amounts it can be still or it's like you know it's, it's something you don't necessarily want to be taking too much just because of the, the negative side effects that it may occur and yeah where this sort of a hormetic dose lies of how much you can handle that's going to be also like very dependent of the particular individual and uh, like how much oxidative stress are they suffering from and how much kind of glutathione they would need and and so on so it's like a very specific to the individual and I would argue that, like I said, because of the collateral negative effects, like right. the, the thyroid stuff, these molecules are a net negative. We're not looking at the net effect on a human. So that's, that's one of the overarching ideas with a carnivorous diet is if the supplement, like the supplement companies are painting this as like a positive thing. It's this adage, you know, like people always talk about this now, like, you know, there's this saying, you know, the, a policeman sees a drunk guy looking for his keys under a light, you know, in the middle of the night, there's a light shining on the street. And he says, well, he says, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm looking for my keys. And, well, did you lose them here? He says, no, this is where the light is, you know? And so it's yeah. the idea that like the supplement companies just want to draw our attention to the benefits. But my increasingly uh, strong perspective is that if we look at plants overall, they are a net negative. Mm -hmm. Sure, a supplement company that wants to sell sulforaphane or wants to sell resveratrol can, can highlight the benefits. And I'm happy to talk about resveratrol, and I would love to talk about curcumin as well. Um, they can highlight the benefits or the purported benefits, but what they're not showing you, and the myopic nature of this, is that they're not showing you the net effect of these molecules. And I would argue that plants don't want to get eaten. They are not existing to help humans. And so the supplement company can twist this around and sell it to you as a benefit with regard to hormesis and glutathione, but right. the net benefit is negative. There's no, the net effect, I should say, is negative because of the effect on the thyroid and because the effect on glutathione is not unique to sulforaphane. You can get uh, an adequate, healthy, robust glutathione response without any of these plant hormetics. There's a great article that I found recently um, I need to post about it on my social media. And they found that they looked at the antioxidant status of humans and they found that when they removed, uh, they had a group of humans that ate 600 grams. So more than a pound of, you know, fruits and vegetables a day and a group of humans that ate none. And they found no difference in the antioxidant mm. status between yeah. the two groups saying that you can, when you add 600 grams, so that's, you know, I mean, most of your list, maybe your listeners in Europe, so they 600 grams makes sense to them. But for people in the US, you know, that's over a pound, that's like a pound and a half or close to a pound and a half of fruits and vegetables a day, you know, mm -hmm. there was no benefit, no change in the antioxidant mm -hmm. status of humans. Yeah, even like so we don't need it. 
Yeah, antioxidant supplements themselves also don't uh, reduce like mortality, and yeah. uh, they they can actually cause like a, you know uh, a net negative effects, or they can actually make the person weaker because the antioxidants they blunt all of the hormetic effects from their environment, so to say, it's because uh, some oxidative stress is good and some uh, some inflammation is good because it cannot trigger. Uh, the hormetic effect, but if you take like too many antioxidants or if you consume too many vegetables, <laughs> for example, then uh, your body will blunt the hormetic response and it's not going to get stronger, so to say. So you need to get, you need to be stressed out by these positive things like exercise and uh, cold and fasting and these yeah. other things. There are plenty of ways to obtain hormesis other than mm -hmm. molecular hormesis. And like, you know, like we see with the vegetable study, like we're talking about to get a robust completely adequate glutathione level and antioxidant status in the human body, I would argue that the best antioxidant status or the optimal level of, anti of antioxidants, endogenous antioxidants like glutathione can be obtained without plant compounds. Right. They're confusing the picture, they're, they're changing the equation, and they have all these negative effects in other areas of the body that are not being highlighted. So the net negative effect, which mm -hmm. is, this is the supplement industry not wanting to show you the dark side of these things because right. it's a it's a money maker. People are often sold. They want to take a pill. Everyone wants to live forever. I want to live forever. You know, or at least I want to stay healthy for as long as I can. So it's a very, it's a very tempting thing when a supplement company says, hey, take this pill, you won't get cancer. Or mm -hmm. take this pill, you'll feel better. And it's just, it's just the Pied Piper. It's, there's, there's nothing behind right. it. The whole, right. the whole paradigm is, is crooked. Right, right. I, I do think that uh, like you definitely don't need to be taking like some antioxidant supplements as long as you live a healthy lifestyle and uh, you do fasting and so on, these other things. Uh, but I do think personally, at least I would say that, you know, at least uh, consuming some plants to get a small hormetic dose is going to be still like a, it, it can be a good thing just because the modern world itself is also like full of these additional stressors that cause extra oxidative stress that we can't avoid as, as, as much as possible. You can't avoid air pollution. You can't avoid uh, these other environmental toxins that we get exposed to. And in that situation, getting like a trigger in uh, glutathione with these caloric mimetics like sulforaphane or these other polyphenol type of vegetables, then I would say that in that scenario, it can be somewhat useful. And I would say that for the average Westerner, the the sulforaphane from broccoli isn't their main concern. Their main concern are the other phytonutrients of plants like you know gluten and uh, these whatever like lectins, those sort of things. They, those things are actually somewhat more kind of harmful than just you know broccoli or sulforaphane. Well, yes, we didn't even start talking about those. Yeah, so <laughs> at this point, we're just talking about the plant pesticides like right. the glucosinolates. But you're sure. you're bringing up this great idea that this is just the first problem with plants. You know that there are things like lectins. And at the beginning of our discussion, I, I mentioned that one of the things that drew me to this field was the improvement in autoimmunity mm -hmm. with with this diet. You know, and I think that for this, that I think that one of the most compelling hypotheses in this in this world is the idea that for some people, uh, perhaps for all of us at low levels, lectins or something in the plants, whether it's the plant pesticide or the lectin or other uh, molecules, are immunologic triggers. Mm -hmm. And they, see, they could potentially be, there's very strong evidence now, at least at the population level, could be triggering autoimmunity for people. I mean, in my clinical practice, I have seen this time and time again, and people always message me on Instagram now and say things like, my... 
I'm so interested in cases where people go from paleolithic diets to carnivorous diets. So they go from an ostensibly healthy diet, you know, a diet that excludes grains and beans and dairy, and then they do a carnivorous diet where they're cutting out all the rest of the plants they're eating, and they get improvement in autoimmunity with that transition. And generally, I, I see that many times. There's a little bit of confirmation bias there because the people who are on my Instagram are people who have had you know, improvements in this or people who are interested in carnivorous diet. But the fact that those examples exist is intriguing to me. And the idea that for some people, going to a paleolithic diet is, is all they need and they get improvement in autoimmunity. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that was, perhaps they were sensitive to dairy or nuts or, uh, or legumes. But for some people, going further and removing all plants, that is what gives them the most improvement in their autoimmune disease. And the cases around inflammatory bowel disease uh, specifically like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are really intriguing to me because that's what we generally see that people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's seem to be getting better most of the time, or they seem to be getting better in the highest proportion or with the highest uh, certainty. And again, these are just sort of anecdotal numbers. So I don't mean to overinflate the amount of data that we have, but at least in terms of what I'm seeing from people interacting with me, there's a lot of people with these IBDs, especially the Crohn's and ulcerative colitis who get better when they cut out all the plants. I wonder if my, my concern or my thinking is that perhaps IBD or Crohn's and ulcerative colitis are one of these conditions where people are exquisitely sensitive to plant materials. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, things like gluten, um, lectins, um, and lectins are carbohydrate binding proteins that are triggering, could be triggering autoimmunity in humans. And I mean, Stephen Gundry is not someone who I agree with in terms of his overall philosophy, but you know, he wrote the book, The Plant Paradox, and he talked about these lectins and plants. And I think he kind of missed the forest for the trees. And he wanted to say, like, cut out these foods because they have, they have the most lectins and you can still eat these foods. But I would argue that lectins are in almost every food and even, even animal foods may have some lectins. But I think that the plant lectins are probably uniquely triggering because of this interaction and the immunology. Yeah. And then there are many other things in plants that we know are frankly toxic to humans as well. We could go down the list. Hmm. Yeah, oxalates tons of things it does make sense that uh you know if you do have like some sort of an allergy or an autoimmune issue then yeah it would be better to eliminate the thing that is causing the issues because your body wouldn't be able to heal itself if, if it's still being you know attacked by these uh compounds so to say uh, but what, what do you think about for those people who don't have any autoimmune issues uh would those people still you know would it be wiser for them to avoid these things because they may potentially, if they avoid these things completely, then what if they develop these autoimmune issues in the future just because of avoiding these uh, compounds? So I don't think that's going to happen. The way that it works generally is that the immune system, autoimmunity is when the immune system reacts against itself, mm -hmm. reacts against the human body, you know, and that sort of patterning is something that happens when we are very young in the, you know, in the, when we are developing in the womb and when we're developing, our immune system goes through this period of patterning and, you know, the innate and the adaptive immune system, especially the adaptive immune system, uh, is very cold and is, is often patterned around saying, you, this is a self antigen, don't react against this. This is a foreign antigen. I want to react against this. So the development of the immune system is quite intricate. And by the time we're adults, our immune system has a program and that program is fairly fixed. I really do not think that by avoiding certain foods, people are going to develop more reactivity or more immunity. There, there's not nearly as much patterning to the immune system 
when we're adults. It's mostly we have this stable set of genetics that is kind of fixed, and this is the immune system's program. When we're young, it's patterning, right? And we could talk about that as well. But I don't think that by avoiding foods, people are going to develop autoimmunity in the future. I think that generally, my feeling is that most people are going to react to plant foods immunologically. I really believe that strongly now. And some people are going to have strongly obvious autoimmunity, whether it's eczema, psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis. And I actually uh, strongly believe, and I think there's a good amount of evidence to support that psychiatric disease is often autoimmune. Um, I think that there's evidence that microglial cells, which are brain-derived macrophages, are activated in the brains of people with depression and anxiety and OCD. And mm -hmm. so I think that their psychiatric disease is also autoimmune. So people also need to understand the broad spectrum of autoimmune disease. You know, um, small skin rashes can show people they have autoimmunity. So I think that, well, the first thing I would say is if people are totally well and they are kicking ass in every aspect of their life, you know, mm -hmm. sleep is good, mood is good, libido is good, body composition is good, then I don't think there's a reason to change what you are doing in your life. Keep kicking ass, be kind to people in your life and do what you need to do. But I think that the majority of people in their life, if they take an honest appraisal, will be able to look at it and say, you know what, I've got this little rash or I, you know, my, my have gas right. or bloating or I, I don't have regular bowel movements or my body composition is not the way I want or I don't have the mental clarity I want or I don't sleep as well as I want. And those can all be multifactorial. But I think if people have things in their life that they want to improve on, I think you need to take an honest appraisal of how much your diet may be contributing to these things. And mm. I would argue that diet is a, is a strong possibility to be a contributor. Mm. It's not the only thing. We know that stress in our lives and environmental toxins, like you mentioned, you know, water can have toxins, air can have toxins, you know, and relationships can be toxic. So there are many things that can contribute. But people have to think about the quality and the composition of the kilogram quantities of food they're putting in their body. And that can influence many of these things. And the spectrum of autoimmune disease is quite broad, right? Mm -hmm. So I would, I would suggest to people that if they're not kicking 110% of the ass they want to kick in their life, you might think about changing your diet. And you don't have to do a carnivorous diet. But I think elimination diets can be very valuable. You mm -hmm. can look at the foods that may be more or less triggering. If we, if we were to create a spectrum, you know, in my opinion, I think something like a paleo diet would be a great first step. I think cutting out things like grains and beans and dairy is a great first step for people. If they do that, I think they're going to get a lot of improvement in, in a variety of things. And then I would say the next step would be something like a ketogenic diet. They're actually affecting macros. And I would also consider something like an autoimmune paleo or autoimmune ketogenic diet when you get rid of all the nuts and all the seeds, mm -hmm. which are things that are sort of allowed on a paleo diet. But I would argue that the seeds of plants, which are actually nuts, seeds, grains, and beans, those are all seeds, are some of the most highly defended parts of a plant in terms of anti-nutrients, digestive enzyme inhibitors, et cetera. So right. if people cut out those, I think they're moving more toward an autoimmune protocol. And then from a keto autoimmune protocol, I think the next step would be a carnivorous diet, which cuts out all the rest of those plants. And as we can talk about, I think that one of the, my overall thesis is that though cutting out those plants, you won't lose anything because if you construct your carnivorous diet, well, eating animals nose to tail provides all the nutrients a human needs in the most optimal, highly bioavailable forms. So, you know, earlier you said, 
you felt like maybe there was some benefit to eating sulforaphane. I mean, I'm going to say, no, I don't, I disagree. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll agree to disagree here. I would say that I don't think so. I think that you can get everything you need as a human to be optimal without any plants. There are no nutrients in plants that are unique to plants or that do any unique roles in the human body that you cannot get in that do any unique roles in the human body, period. Mm -hmm. Everything that a human needs to thrive is available eating an animal nose to tail. And I would argue in more highly bioavailable forms without any of the plant anti-nutrients. That is plant pesticides, like we talked a little bit about, digestive enzyme inhibitors, lectins, oxalates, all sorts of things like that. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Like I totally agree that, uh, you know, uh, most people don't know if something is affecting them until they actually remove the thing. Yes. So to say, like uh, the for example of people, like I would say that most people who are listening, they at least you know practice some form of uh, grain restriction, or they're not eating any gluten or something at all, and they didn't right, notice right. it after they stopped it. Their inflammation goes away, bloating goes away, and they feel better. And I also agree that you know the the animal foods are most nutritious. Uh, foods that humans can consume and especially in terms of like the bioavailability and so on yeah uh, but but what do, we, what do you think about you know maybe the animal foods are too nutritious so to say that we know that um, excess excess nutrition excess calories all those things they affect uh, lifespan and longevity in a negative way and right. like and likewise like some mild uh, mild stress in the form of hormesis as well as a uh, like caloric restriction those things are actually helping with longevity so maybe maybe it isn't a good idea to always get like a bunch of these nutrient-dense foods all the time because it can lead to like excess growth and um, excess and it's going to prevent the body from you know experiencing this mild stress from caloric restriction what do you think about that this is an interesting rabbit hole to go down so what we have seen if we look at the original studies on caloric restriction the benefits caloric restriction seems to trigger this family of genes called the sirtuin family of genes and we can mimic the molecular mechanisms of caloric restriction with ketosis. Mm -hmm. So this is what's so fascinating is that a carnivorous diet is essentially a ketogenic diet. You know, there's, there's very few carbohydrates. Meat actually has a small amount of carbohydrates. But mm -hmm. the benefits of caloric restriction are mimicked almost exactly by a ketogenic diet. So ketones, beta-hydroxybutyrate being the one that's mostly been studied, also triggers the sirtuin family of genes. Right. So we can obtain the same benefits of caloric restriction without being caloric restricted, yeah, okay. calorie restricted. Because anyone who's tried caloric restriction knows that it's, it's great in the short term. You know, I think fasting is beneficial in the short term and straight fasting is probably is different molecularly than ketosis. But in terms of sustainability, if you look at anyone that's doing a an overall calorie restricted diet, that's no way to live. You know, mm. you are basically slowly starving yourself. Your thyroid doesn't work because it says you are starving. You know, yeah. you might live to be very old, but you're going to live a miserable life. So <laughs> caloric restriction is, is not valuable for people in the long term. Yeah. If people want to do it in the short term, it's great. I think fasting is something we should all employ from time to time. But when we are eating, I think we can eat to uh, complete. Uh, satiation and we can eat as much as we want at time from time to time or we can eat to completely meet all of our body's calorie needs and if we are in ketosis we are still mimicking the mechanisms of caloric restriction at the molecular level that is activation of the sirtuin family of genes now the sirtuin family of genes is an NAD dependent family of genes that are essentially deacetylases they turn genes on and off and 
as I'm sure you've noted in your work, you know, when the sirtuin family of genes is turned on, they are turning on genes that are involved in longevity. These are genes that are involved in insulin sensitivity, the FOXO mm -hmm. family, things like AMPK, et cetera, et cetera. And so we want this balance, but we don't want that to be on all the time. We need to have that on sometimes. We also need to have the, you know, at a basic, overly simplified level, there's this balance between AMP kinase and mTOR, you know, mm -hmm. sirtuins on, sirtuins off. We don't want to have that on all the time. And so that's what I think is so interesting about carnivorous diet. It really gives us the ability to do both at the same time. People are concerned about mTOR. And, you know, before the podcast, we were chatting about this. And people are concerned that if we think about protein and high-protein diets, isn't this going to activate mTOR too much? And again, this is quite nuanced, and I think it's going to take a long time to really develop, uh, you know, verbiage to help to make this simple for people to understand or to, to make it clear, I should yeah. say. But, you know, mTOR is a valuable thing. mTOR is getting this bad rap now. People are saying, I want to stop mTOR, and there's drugs like dracomycin. You know, mm -hmm. I just want to block mTOR. And I think this is not a good idea. We need mTOR. We need the mammalian target of rapamycin. We need mTORC1 and mTORC2. These are anabolic pathways. At times in our life, we want to build muscle. We want to grow. We want to be strong. We know that over time, if you consistently overactivate mTOR, that's probably a bad thing. But I think what we're seeing as an overarching theme is that cyclic activation of mTOR with concomitant uh, mirroring activation of the longevity pathways is probably what we want. So we want to go through sometimes when we're activating mTOR and other times when mTOR is turned off. The worst thing yeah. we can probably do is turn mTOR on all the time. Yeah. And it's probably just as bad to never turn mTOR on at all. Mm -hmm. yes. so hopefully that makes sense to people. So uh, what triggers mTOR? So uh, there are two big signals to mTOR. This mammalian target of rapamycin, which is an intracellular kinase molecule that then, you know, phosphorylates other molecules in this pathway. And I, I know you talk about this in your book, you know, the molecules downstream from mTOR. And so what, what triggers, what activates mTOR? There are two things. And one of them is protein, but more specifically, it's leucine, which is one of the branched chain amino acids. That's one of the main things that triggers mTOR. And the other is insulin. But the relative contributions of leucine and insulin are not equivalent. Leucine triggers mTOR in a very transient fashion and um, not as strongly as insulin. If we are looking at mTOR triggers, insulin is by far the strongest, most prolonged, the most temporally prolonged activator of mTOR. So Ben Beekman has spoken about this and I was interacting with him a little bit earlier this week. Uh, we were dialoguing about this and he was gracious enough to sort of share some of his knowledge and share some studies. But what we see, the, one of the concerns with a carnivorous diet is that you're eating a ton of protein, right? And I think what you're suggesting is, is eating a ton of protein on a carnivorous diet going to be bad? And I would argue it's not, and I'll tell you why. Because you may be getting a large amount of leucine on a carnivorous diet, but when you eat a large amount of protein, that's going to trigger mTOR, which we know is a good thing in small doses, but it's only going to trigger it for a short amount of time. From the study I've seen, it's only triggering mTOR for 30 to 40 minutes, and then it shuts off. So if you are also practicing an intermittent fasting protocol, you could imagine that somebody eating a carnivorous diet within an eight-hour window might trigger mTOR twice a day for 30 to 40 minutes. But in the 16-hour window between eating, mTOR would be off because their insulin is low, and we can talk about that. And then even between meals, their mTOR is off. Right. In stark contrast would be someone who has a high insulin at baseline and is triggering insulin spikes with their food. So I should back up a moment and say, most people will probably know this, but 
eating a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet changes your insulin markedly, right? Mm, yeah. And we were also talking about this before we started the podcast. Protein is not insulogenic in the setting of a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. But if you are eating a mixed diet and you are not in ketosis, if you are doing glycolysis and burning glucose, then yes, eating protein will trigger a strong insulin response and will alter the insulin glucagon ratio. But the insulin glucagon ratio will not change significantly in the setting of a ketogenic diet when you ingest proteins. So this is a major misunderstanding. Yeah. So protein, leucine, these are completely different molecular signals to your body depending on the context, whether it's carbohydrate rich or carbohydrate poor. We're talking mixed diet, ketosis. Ketosis is a very special situation, right? So we said beta-hydroxybutyrate independently activates sirtuins, longevity mechanisms. That is going to create a different, you know, sort of milieu for mTOR. But in and of itself, leucine can activate mTOR for a short amount of time. It turns off right away. Insulin, on the other hand, when insulin is around, it activates mTOR for three to four hours, and it activates mTOR in a different way and it activates it more strongly. So if we are talking about mTOR activation, what we are really worried about is insulin. Mm-hmm. We are worried about insulin. And so I would argue that in the setting of ketosis, we know that insulin is very low pretty much throughout the day. If you look at a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM of somebody on a carnivorous diet, mm-hmm. it's essentially flat. Yeah. Their glucose doesn't spike at all. It's about mm-hmm. 90 milligrams per deciliter all day long. And if you look at the fasting insulin of someone on a carnivorous diet or a ketogenic diet, it's very low. I mean, what I've seen in my clients is usually around two to three. Um, I don't know if you guys use the same units in Europe for Mm. fasting insulin, but the range for fasting insulin in the U.S. is four to 26. And most people that I see, including myself, are below the lower end of normal for insulin. Isn't that bad? No, it's not bad. It's fine. But the insulin is very low. So fasting insulin is low. And if you look at insulin throughout the day, it doesn't spike at all mm-hmm. um, when you're on a carnivorous diet. So there's essentially <clears throat> very, very little or no activation of mTOR from insulin on this type of diet. So I would say I don't worry about this because of the nature of the diet. Because the setting of the ketosis, your original question was, is eating this type of diet with a ton of nutrients going to be a bad thing? I would say no, because it's kind of this this amazing middle ground where you're getting lots of nutrients, but at the same time you're in ketosis. So you're, you're giving your body what it needs, but at the same time you're giving your body the signal to turn on the sirtuins and turn on the longevity genes. And if you're not spiking insulin, you're not turning on mTOR constitutively like you would if you were having insulin high throughout the day. We should contrast this with someone who's on a mixed diet and say that those type of diets are going to have insulin high throughout the day their overall insulin is going to be much higher and they're going to spike it much more. Mm-hmm. The mTOR activation of somebody eating a carbohydrate-based diet or a high-carb diet is going to be so much more yeah. than somebody eating a ketogenic diet. So I really do not worry that a nutrient excess is going to be a problem long-term. I think that this is sort of this, this amazing middle ground where you're giving your body what it needs, giving it micronutrients, giving it macronutrients. It can do what it needs to do. It can build, but you're also saying, hey, don't go crazy with this. You know, don't overactivate mTOR. And if you wanted to on this type of diet, you could incorporate some carbohydrates from time to time. I think that evolutionarily, it's probably reasonable to think that from time to time, our ancestors would come across something like fruit, which we haven't talked about. Fruit is the one part of the plant that probably didn't have anti-nutrients in it. But I don't think anyone would argue that long-term excess consumption of fruit is good because of the fructose, and we know all about that. But 
occasionally our ancestors would probably eat some fruit in the nap tip situation, everything goes completely the direction, right? You eat some fruit, your body says, whoa, I have glucose, I have fructose, I don't need to be in ketosis anymore. You know, insulin can go way up, your blood glucose can change, and then your mTOR is going to go through the roof for a short amount of time, mm -hmm. and then it's going to back off. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's a variability. And then we can also incorporate intermittent fasting if we want. Um, and I think that on a carnivorous diet, it's probably a good thing. I, I imagine that even if our ancestors were amazing hunters and they were eating a lot of animals, they would probably have had a day or two occasionally where they didn't eat anything, and that's fine. And so in that situation, you're getting no nutrients, you're getting no leucine, your insulin is going to stay really low, and you're absolutely activating into zero. Right. But we know that long-term fasting is a hormetic, and yeah, exactly. if we do it long-term, we'll die, right? Yeah. And, and if you know anyone, if you've, I'm sure you've done long fast. Anyone that's done a fast more than 24 hours will notice <clears throat> you often feel cold, your libido goes down. That's your body saying, hey, I'm shutting down. It's not a bad thing in the short term, but your mm -hmm. thyroid hormones are changing. You're shifting, you're shifting your T3 yeah. over to reverse T3. Your pituitary is saying, hey, I'm not producing any more testosterone or estrogen or whatever, you know, whether it's a man or a woman. There's, I'm not, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be having sex right now. You're starving, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. But it does create this hormetic stress and um, is probably a good thing in terms of autophagy. But... Um, yeah, so that's an interesting. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? I yeah, yeah, you, you did go into like a really detail with <clears> it, <throat> and I do appreciate it. And it's what, what, a few things that I want to point point out is that it is true that the kind of the, the the way mTOR is going to be expressed varies hugely between different diets and what kind of a, like a nutritional environment the body is in. And specifically, like carbohydrates do still spike mTOR and they make the body anabolic. So even though you may be going on a, like a low protein diet, but you still eat very frequently, then you're, gonna, you, you're not going to sidestep the effects of mTOR and uh, suppress it completely. So the most important thing about mTOR is actually the eating frequency because even just a small amount mm -hmm. of amino acids, uh, whether from a, like a really low protein diet, it can still activate mTOR regardless of uh, how much protein you're trying to restrict. So uh, someone who's eating three times a day uh, and they're deliberately restricting their protein, uh, then, then they may not be getting the desired effects just because they're still elevating mTOR and they're still elevating insulin from the other macronutrients and so on. So it's a very, really important point in a sense that uh, the eating frequency is uh, the most important part when it comes to mTOR and so on. And, and the other side of it as well, that if you are having a lower eating frequency, then uh, that's going to allow autophagy to also kick in and that can balance mTOR out uh, based upon that. So even if you are, let's say, e even though the, the stimulation of mTOR on a carnivorous diet may not be like as dangerous as on a high-carb, high-protein diet, then uh, it's still a good idea to practice some form of uh, daily time-restricted eating uh, just because you are consuming like, uh, you know, adequate amounts of nutrients and you would want to kind of balance it out with some uh, time spent in a fasted state, even on a, like a daily basis. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's not a bad idea. One of the things that people notice, uh, well, I'll just add to that, that you were saying, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I will emphasize to people that if you are protein restricting and eating carbohydrates, you are triggering mTOR more than your protein, right? right. So right. I, would argue, <clears throat> I would argue that the, the best strategy is, is carbohydrate restriction rather than yeah. protein restriction. Yeah. Um, if you are, uh, carbohydrate restriction is going to have a much more robust effect mm. on mitigating mTOR, uh, than 
protein restriction. Yeah. And if also you really, if you want to do both, you should just fast completely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, exactly. protein restriction does not make sense to me in the long term for mTOR yeah. because if you're eating carbohydrates in a meal, you're going to trigger mTOR more than you would have with protein. So yeah. you might as well eat steak and not an apple. There's no point in eating an apple three times a day. That's yeah. going to trigger mTOR, you know. Yeah. And and another one, another point, you know, the or the reasons why people think that protein restriction extends lifespan is because it's going to uh, suppress IGF one. Uh, but you know what stimulates IGF one the most is actually in- insulin again, insulin. and it's, it it does more so than protein. And uh, in my own personal example, I can say that. Uh, fasting and uh, time-restricted eating is actually a much more effective way of suppressing uh, IGF-1 as well, rather than protein restriction. Because uh, yes. I, I would say that uh, I I consume maybe like more than average uh, amounts of protein, and uh, usually maybe like about one gram per pound, and uh, even sometimes up upwards of that. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a lot of protein, but I'm doing it. I'm eating primarily like in a one meal a day setting as well, right. in a really tight window. But my IGF-1 blood tests, my serum IGF-1 levels were like really low. They were low. They were at uh, uh, 100 nanograms per milliliter. Right. And, and right. the re- reference range is like 90 to 350. So yes. really, yeah. it's really drop bottom, and it's lower than uh, probably lower than someone who is restricting protein or d- who is doing like a very low protein diet. Although, I I'm, although agree. I'm eating like ten times more protein than someone else uh, in that some same same uh, setting. And I check I check IGF one on all my clients, and what I've seen in people who are on carnivorous diets, they have IGF ones <clears throat> that are about 120. Yeah. You know, between 100 and 120. So these are people who are eating 200 to 300 grams of protein a day, <clears throat> and the IGF one does not spike. Yeah. It doesn't spike. And if you think you know, I've heard other people on mixed diets talk about it. Their IGF one is at 190. Yeah, you know, and whether you know, I've heard Peter Atia talk about his. I mean, there's just not a lot of people talking about their IGF one levels, so I have to, you know, mention Peter Atia's. And I think Peter Atia is doing a ton of great stuff, and he fasts like crazy. So I think Peter Atia is doing a lot of great stuff. But I'm just using him as an example because I know from his podcast that his IGF one level is like 100, 190. So I'm saying that people on carnivorous diets do not spike their IGF one. It's actually low. It's you know, it's like 120 ish, 115 to 120 on a carnivorous diet. So yeah. I agree with you. The stimulus, the reason people care about IGF-1 is because IGF-1 will trigger mTOR, right? When IGF-1 buys its receptor. So IGF-1 can bind to two receptors. It can bind to an IGF-1 receptor or an insulin receptor. Mm-hmm. So, but insulin is going to trigger a lot of IGF-1 as well. It's the insulin-like growth factor one. So um, if you don't have insulin around your IGF-1 is not going to go through the roof. It's a totally different mm-hmm. situation. So mm-hmm. this is a really important conversation to, for people to hear and to know that there is this wild phenomenon. You know, you can be in ketosis. You can have a low-carbohydrate diet and eat a lot of protein, like a carnivore mm-hmm. um, or a carnivorous diet, and you're not going to send your IGF-1 through the roof. I think we're going to exactly. – I think this conversation will – um, will continue because people are worried about this, but it brings up so many of these really complex molecular mechanisms. And I think that it's, it's incredible to think you can eat steak every day and don't just eat steak. <clears throat> I think, you know, on a carnivorous diet, you want to eat nose to tail, but I think you can eat steak every day and still have all of your autophagy happening when you're fasting yeah. um, and have all of your longevity genes turned on. It's just yeah, it's a insulin, crazy phenomenon. 
insulin and IGF-1 or let's yeah insulin PDA <coughs> the IGF-1 is the most important part for longevity <coughs> and uh, restricting carbs is going to be the and fasting those things are the easiest ways of going about it rather than trying to restrict protein uh, deliberately like in very low amounts but what about uh, like methionine restriction that's another thing that is talked about yeah yeah so in the rodent experiments that have been done methionine restriction appears to be associated with longevity but the whole story here is that this is about the methionine glycine ratio mm. because what we see is that in the rodent studies, when they restrict methionine, they get, they get something that looks like calorie restriction. And this is where people are thinking, about, oh, I should restrict methionine. But they get the same effects in mice when they also add glycine. So if we can adjust, if we can create an appropriate methionine glycine ratio, that is the same effect in mice as a methionine restriction. So mm. it's not about restricting methionine. It's about making sure you get enough glycine. And this sort of, sort of is the segue to eating the animal nose to tail. If you just eat steaks, you will overload your body with methionine. I do not advocate a carnivorous diet. That is a meat and water diet. I'm quite concerned for Jordan Peterson and his daughter. I won't, hopefully, I'll, I'm sure I'll connect with them eventually. But I think you need to eat nose to tail. And the reason it's important to be nose to tail in the context of methionine and glycine is that muscle meat is high in methionine, but connective tissue like tendon is high in glycine. So we cannot get enough glycine, and thus we eat tendons, and we are not eating tendons. Right. <clears throat> so this is one of the reasons that I advocate hydrolyzed collagen or eating tendons or bone broth. These are our glycine sources. These are what humans need to be doing in addition to muscle meat for an adequate methionine-glycine ratio. Methionine is a conditionally essential amino acid. We can make it, but we often don't make enough. And when you eat more methionine, you are going to use up glycine and the methylation pathways. Glycine is one of the things that the body uses to buffer excess methyl groups. Methyl groups are found in molecules like methionine and other molecules that we ingest. And so we need glycine to buffer ex-methyl groups. If we don't have enough glycine, we're not going to make the proteins which have glycine in them, namely collagen and glutathione. Uh, many proteins in the body are going to have glycine, but those are two of the most important ones. And so we're going to get deficient in those molecules if we don't, um, in those large molecules, those large proteins, if we don't get enough glycine. So mm -hmm. it's very important. If you look at the rodent studies, <clears throat> it's the glycine that has the effect right of normalizing the methionine-glycine ratio. It's not the methionine restriction itself, per se. It's probably the fact that when they're restricting methionine, the methionine-glycine ratio comes down, and that's okay, but you can get the same effect by supplementing glycine. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 the, the research that I've seen is that uh, methionine re restriction itself, it, it isn't actually that influential in uh, longevity as long as there's the caloric restriction is still present. So uh, the caloric restriction will be still more powerful uh, regardless of how much protein or how much methionine the mm -hmm. mice or the rodent is consuming. And they've actually mm -hmm. done some studies where uh, they have this one group that is calorically restricted, but their protein uh, percentage and methionine percentage is also like somewhat higher to meet. Oh, interesting. To meet the same levels of those mice who aren't under caloric restriction. And because of the fact that the, that the mice is, is under caloric restriction, it's, it's still going to promote longevity regardless of the higher amounts of uh, methionine and the, the, mm -hmm. the, and the group that isn't caloric restricted and is high in methionine, they don't see like any longevity benefits just because mm -hmm. they, they don't they experience uh, caloric restriction. So caloric restriction mm -hmm. is more powerful and you, you can get away with a, 
a high methionine intake as long as you practice, you know, the intermittent fasting and uh, as, as long as you have like some mild caloric restriction uh, present. There's, um, there are studies people can look up if they want regarding the methionine-glycine ratio. One of them is called the effect of dietary glycine on methionine metabolism in rats fed a high methionine diet. That's probably the best one. Um, I will give people the yeah, yeah we, we can I, share I them in the show notes. But I think, uh, yeah, the, the, your message is still like, I, I totally agree that we should eat like nose to tail because first of all, the the most of the nutrients from those those animals are like actually found in these uh, like unconventional yes. parts like the organ meats, the bones, the tendons, ligaments. And you're, you're kind of missing out on the potential nutrition and uh, the most kind of uh, bioavailable sources of them. So yeah, totally. Yeah, agree with yeah. That. And, you know, the, in the abstract of this study, it just says the alleviation of the mechanism, uh, the alleviation mechanism of methionine toxicity by dietary glycine was investigated mm. by weaning rats fed a high methionine diet and then feeding them glycine. So basically, this is well known in the rodent literature that methionine appears to be toxic in excess, and you can alleviate that by giving them glycine. And mm. so this is part of the part of the equation that people need to be aware of. But yeah, the, in the setting of the caloric restriction, it's, it's yeah. quite complex and interesting. Yeah. What would you eat on a daily basis then uh, in your diet? So we, I'm definitely thinking about getting nose to tail and this gets into sort of the nuts and bolts of carnivore. If people have detail, if people are interested, they can go to my YouTube channel, which is Paul Saladino MD. I have a video there about what I'm eating recently. And then um, they can look at my Instagram, which is at Paul Saladino MD. Um, and I talk about what I eat there and I've a lot of posts there about, um, what I'm doing. So I am eating muscle meat. I'm eating probably three, two to three pounds of organic grass-fed muscle meat. I prefer beef just because I think of the, the density of nutrients a day. And then I also eat egg yolks. I tend to eat them without the white. I eat them raw because it's easier that way. And I'm not worried about getting salmonella or campylobacter because that's all on the shell and I eat organic eggs. And so I've never had a problem with that. I've eaten a lot of raw egg yolks in my life. And so I'm eating, I'm eating the muscle meat but I'm also eating it with collagen. So I'm trying to get the methionine glycine balance, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm eating muscle meat. I'm eating connective tissue. I'm eating things like bone broth and tendons. And then I'm also eating, if we think about the organism, just kind of nose to tail, we can think about um, all the different parts of the organism and, you know, the organs and things like that that I'm eating as well. So I'm also eating liver. I stress that in my diet. I'll try and eat heart and uh, spleen and pancreas when I can. Sometimes I use desiccated supplements for that. Mm -hmm. I eat kidneys sometimes. So I'm trying to eat all of the organs as well. I think it's important. The main one I try and get is liver and I'll end up eating between eight and 16 ounces a week, probably more like 16 ounces um, of liver a week. So I'm getting muscle meat. I'm getting connective tissue. I'm getting organ meat. I'll also get bones. So I'll, I'll take bone meal for calcium and then the bone derived minerals like boron and manganese is particularly high in the bones. I think that it's evolutionarily consistent for our ancestors to eat things like bone meal or the soft ends of bones and right. get some of the calcium and uh, calcium hydroxyapatite. And then I also uh, will eat some seafood for a source of iodine and omega-3. I don't have access to animal brains. That would probably be the best source of iodine, uh, excuse me, of uh, omega-3 in an animal. But um, I, so I'll eat salmon eggs. I'm a big fan of salmon roe, which is called akura in, in terms in, in like when you go to get sushi. Um, so I eat salmon roe. I eat uh, liver. I eat collagen. I'm using tallow for a little bit of extra fat in my diet and um, muscle meat. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Nice. So throughout the day, that may vary. I may vary the sources of meat. Sometimes I'll eat 
bison or, or other types of meat. But uh, yeah, so it's, mm. I'm trying to eat nose to tail. I'm trying to think like, all right, uh, the connective tissue has unique nutrients. I want to make sure that I'm getting the glycine and the collagen, which is, you know, the molecule that has glycine in it in the, in the connective tissue. I want to get the muscle meat. I want to get it from a, a well-raised animal that's not exposed to pesticides. And then I want to get the organ meat because we know that organ meat relative to muscle meat has a unique complement of B vitamins and other nutrients. If you just eat muscle meat, you'll only get some of the B vitamins that you need. You won't get all the B vitamins. You know, it's interesting to think about um, the, the complementary B vitamins. Like if you look at muscle meat, there's not enough folate. You need to eat the liver to get folate. And liver is also higher in, in riboflavin and liver has more copper to balance the zinc in muscle meat. It's just this interesting, there's a real, there's a beautiful amount of symmetry in eating the whole animal. It's kind of just the idea that like, I mentioned this earlier, there are different kingdoms in nature. There's the fungal kingdom, there's the plant kingdom, and there's the animal kingdom. And I see this as different operating systems. This is like mm-hmm. Mac, PC, and whatever, Linux or something, a software engineer is going to tell me. That's not right. Whatever. This is like, you know, Mac OS, Linux, you know, DOS, whatever. <clears throat> I'm not a software engineer. There's different operating systems. And if we eat from the same operating system, it's amazing how it all works with the human body. If you eat animals and you eat the whole animal, it's incredibly... Uh, symmetric or it's just an incredible symmetry to me that you will get everything you need as a human and you'll get them in the right proportions you know if we don't eat the whole animal we're gonna get too much zinc for instance from the muscle meat not enough copper and that can cause problems but if we're eating the muscle meat and the organs in the connective tissue and the bones and we're getting an omega-3 source like the brain or um, or like uh, seafood then and, and we're getting enough fat and we're thinking about our fat protein macros and we're eating things um, you know, we're eating an iodine source, which usually comes with the seafood source, then we will get everything we need as humans. And that's pretty much what I eat in a day. Yeah. It varies a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. Do you eat any plants at all or completely zero? Zero. 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 And I've been strictly carnivore for uh, a little bit over six months now. And I've done tons of blood work on myself. It's been super interesting to talk about on my Instagram and a little bit on my YouTube and I eat, I eat no plants, you know, and I'm not, completely closed to the idea of plants. I just haven't found a reason to eat plants at this point. And I'm sort of on this experiment and I'm doing my blood work. And um, if people are interested, I did a debate with Lane Norton um, where we talked about the non-importance of fiber. That's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down, you know. And we talked about polyphenols and that's a whole other, I mean, we talked a little bit about that earlier today. I mean, sulforaphane Mm -hmm. is not polyphenolic, but there are other polyphenols we could talk about, like resveratrol. So anyway, I don't do any of that right now. Um, and mm. my, the, the blood tests I've done show that my the markers of oxidative stress look great. I mean, my 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is the measure of DNA damage, is very low. It's three. Mm. Um, nice. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's very low. And, then, you know, if you, that's what's generally measured in the sulforaphane studies. And so the question is, you know, like, why do I need sulforaphane if my 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine is already low, you know? Like, yeah, and that yeah. goes back to that first study I mentioned, that when people are given, you know, a pound and a half of fruits and vegetables a day, their oxidative stress markers don't improve at all. Uh, you know, on a carnivorous diet, mine don't look badly. From what I've seen, you know, I've also tested my lipid peroxides, my glutathione levels, all these things. They're all totally normal and robust. Like, I don't see a need for plant molecules to increase any of those things but that would be the main arguments that people have for plants, or at least the polyphenolic part of plants, is mm-hmm. you need those for antioxidants. And I would say, no, there's no evidence that humans need those molecules to have a robust mm-hmm. antioxidant system and adequate 
you know, oxidative reductive balance yeah. in the human body. I think, yeah, I think like you shouldn't go to expect to get some like uh, nutrients uh, from, you shouldn't kind of focus on getting nutrients from plant sources because all of the animal sources are much more uh, nutrient dense and they're also much more bioavailable. So the, the kind of role of uh, plant foods may be just as a source of energy in terms of like starchy tubers or fruit that can be used for like uh, exercise and so on. And uh, maybe like some vegetables can also help a person to practice some form of caloric restriction in some form. But yeah, in yeah. general, in general, like nutrient density is something that you would get primarily from animal foods and uh, and uh, not like plant foods. Plant foods can be also used like for practicing uh, caloric restriction and uh, kind of bringing up some volume in your food. But yeah, most people or some people they simply they're not going to do as best uh, with uh, specific compounds uh, that, for instance, like gluten and so on. We talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah, I would totally agree with that. I've I've talked on other podcasts about the idea that I think humans are actually facultative carnivores, and what I mean by that is I don't obligate carnivores are animals like lions and tigers, which don't ever eat plants and can't eat plants and are never going to consume plants even under times of starvation. Facultative carnivores exist in nature with things like dogs and wolves, you know, they're mm -hmm. obviously connected, but uh, um, those animals can eat plants during times of starvation. And I would argue that, you know, it, it, humans may in fact be facultative carnivores. They may in fact be animals for who, um, for whom plant, I mean, plant foods are really only starvation food. We are so mm. cool. We're so evolutionarily adapted that we can eat plant foods, but they are clearly not the optimal food. They are just starvation food. But that's how we've evolved as a species, that animal foods provide the highest concentration of the most bioavailable nutrients, and we can get everything we need from them. And that's amazing. And so we don't, if those were always available, we would never need to eat plant foods. But in the course of human history, this is the only time in human history that we can actually do that. You know, now if a human wants, they can eat as many animal foods as they, as, all the time right? Mm -hmm. They never have to be plant foods because we have become the best hunters on the planet. We raise our own animals, you know, and it's probably not the same as getting a wild animal, but you can go to the grocery store and there are all these issues about that process as well. But we can go to the grocery store, we can obtain liver, we can obtain brain, I can get salmon roe, you know, like I can be the best hunter in the history of human evolution with different mechanisms, you know, and so I don't need, I, I would argue that I don't need to eat plant foods. These are survival foods, but throughout our evolution, they served a key role. They allowed us to, um, to get through during times of starvation or animal scarcity. So we are adapted to use them mostly like you suggest for macronutrients rather than micronutrients mm -hmm. in the short term. But I would argue that if we rely on plant foods or we make them a consistent part of our diets, we are in some cases, perhaps triggering autoimmunity or right. giving net negative benefits or creating nutrient deficits because we know there are anti-nutrients in plant foods like phytic acid, which may decrease our overall absorption of minerals. So I would argue that by doing that, we're sort of doing ourselves a disservice in the long run. Um, and, you know, people can make their own decisions. And if they, don't, if they don't seem to react to plant foods, there may be some plant foods that are more tolerable than others. You mentioned sweet potatoes. As far as tubers go, those appear to be fairly benign and that gets into the whole issue around carbohydrates and ketosis, whatever, but mm. you know, not all tubers are benign. You know, we could talk about cassava and yeah, but that's the, a yeah, pretty toxic tuber. Yeah. That can, that can be another point 
uh, that or another kind of quirk in the sense that the in in this modern environment where we do do have access to these abundant foods all the time then we actually may have to like self-prescribe ourselves with starvation <laughs> and that's how like yeah. inter intermittent fasting works as well and that can be sometimes like yeah eating some plants and vegetables can also be like uh, this form of triggering voluntarily this hormesis as well as the uh, starvation kind of period where you do deprive yourself from certain nutrients so that your body would actually get stronger and uh, heal itself. So yeah, it's a it's a very complex story of how and it's kind of very huge between different people of uh, how much how much starvation do they need and how much nutrition do they need and uh, what's their primary goals as well. So it's a really interesting uh, topic to yeah definitely go on. at least I, I I enjoy the talk because it kind of opens up a lot of paradigms about uh, these past nutritional advice, especially around eating meat and protein and how many carbs, yeah. you, how many carbohydrates you need. So yeah, the carnivore diet is as it's, as a as a phenomenon is really kind of you know at least is raising eyebrows and making people kind of guess their uh, preconceived notions about what they thought was previously true. I love I love the way it challenges our conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> I love it because it just makes us question. You know, like people can look at my work and they'll see. I don't think we need fiber. You know, people will say this, you know, you know, if you tell someone that you're going to do a carnivorous diet, they will, first of all, they will freak out, you know, and then they'll say, you need plants for X, Y, Z. And usually X, Y, Z is fiber, vitamins and minerals, and then polyphenols or antioxidants. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's fun to think about all those discussions. And I mean, it's a discussion, you know, we don't know for sure, but I love the discussions that have been happening in the space around the absence of need for fiber. You know, that's, that is very clear to me at this point. You know, I, had, I yeah. debated this with Lane Norton and, you know, there is so much evidence that humans do not need fiber at this for point, sure. you know, and then for many people that actually worsens conditions like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I think the fiber discussion is, is just not even worth having anymore. Humans do not need fiber to function properly. All of the, all of the rhetoric that fiber or prebiotic starch is needed for a healthy gut microbiome is just, it's just bullshit. Um, because they're, the studies are flawed and when people, more and more anecdotes are coming out of people on carnivorous diets doing things like eubiome and biome, showing incredibly large alpha diversity and robust populations of all the bacteria in the gut that shouldn't be there according to, you know, Stephen even, Gundry. Yeah. Even like fasting, like people think that fasting wipes out the yes. bacteria, but actually fasting makes the bacteria or the microbiome more diverse because the yeah. microbiome it balances itself 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 out and it's going to self regulate itself uh, so yeah you don't need uh, like a like a wide diversity of foods to have like a wide diverse uh, microbiome probably like you're suggesting fasting may be one of the strongest things we can do to develop a diverse microbiome and <laughs> i would sure. i would argue that fasting might be the most important thing that no one is doing that no one is saying for microbiome because it flies in the face because all these people, whether it's, you know, I don't know who in the space, whether, you know, Rhonda Patrick has talked about this on Joe Rogan and I would disagree with her on that. And, you know, Stephen Gundry's talked about this and I know Walter Longo's talking about this now saying you need prebiotic starch to feed the good bacteria. Again, this is bullshit, you know, yeah. like this is pure bullshit because fasting, because when you fast, the diversity gets greater. That's crazy. You know, like this flies in the face. So the idea that you need fiber or they even need to eat food to change the diversity of the microbiome is di totally different, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, as we've talked about, there are no nutrients that humans cannot get in animals that are in plants. There are no unique nutrients to plants. I mean, people would say vitamin C, and I would say, no, that's not true. There's plenty of vitamin C in animals. 
There's never been a documented case of scurvy in the carnivore community, and many people are not supplementing vitamin C. I think that if you eat liver, especially if you eat brain, um, and you don't overcook your meat, there's no need to supplement vitamin C on a carnivorous diet. Mm. So <clears throat> there's no nutrient in the plant kingdom that humans cannot get from animals in a more bioavailable form. That's just that's not that's almost not even debatable at this point. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And then the last one is the polyphenolic compounds, which is probably the biggest rabbit hole. And as we were talking about with sulforaphane, the sulforaphane is technically not polyphenolic. It's one of the compounds people would talk about as an antioxidant. I would argue that these polyphenolic compounds in plants are doing something through hormesis that is not unique to plants that we can do without plants, and that these polyphenolic compounds have collateral negative effects. You know, mm. um, I'll just add that resveratrol is this darling molecule of the supplement industry now. It's been shown to activate the sirtuin gene system, but as we talked about, that effect is not unique to is not unique to resveratrol. You can do that with ketosis. You can do that in other ways. We don't need uh, this plant molecule to turn those genes on. And again, this is the plant operating system and the human operating system. When resveratrol circulates in the human body, it's been shown to have negative effects, which no one talks about. Mm -hmm. It's been shown to potentially activate T helper 17 cells to change T cell population phenotypes and could potentially be triggering autoimmunity. So this is not a good thing. Like we are using, if we believe that we can use molecules from a different operating system and select for their benefits without suffering the negative consequences of these molecules that are foreign to humans, we are fooling ourselves. Yeah, I, th I think with the, all these supplements like uh, uh, Reservatrol or uh, these other similar antioxidant supplements, then they're all almost like simply used to treat a bad diet <laughs> like the Western diet yes. that yeah. is simply, you know, requires antioxidants and requires lowering oxidative stress, uh, but, you know, too much of it on a healthy diet is not going to be having like a similar effect and again actually simply you know tip it over the top where hormesis becomes more damaging than it is good for so yeah in, in most people who don't expose themselves to like a lot of these uh inflammatory foods processed foods then they don't need to take like a bunch of antioxidant supplements or they don't need to worry about eating a bunch of right. fruits and fruits and vegetables because they're getting like their uh, hormesis from other sources yeah i think we can just say the the unpopular thing that these supplements are, it's sort of like a lazy paradigm, you know? Right. You cannot use sulforaphane or resveratrol to correct a bad diet. And if you look at the mouse experiments with resveratrol, that's exactly what was done, you know? Mm. Resveratrol uh, normalized parameters. So what they did in the mouse experiments with resveratrol is they took one group of mice and fed them a regular diet, and they took another group of mice and fed them a diet that was 60% soybean oil which is a horrible idea you know <laughs> they're basically giving these mice 60 percent oxidized omega-6 and of course the mice get sick they get diabetes they get fatty liver and they give the mice resveratrol and it actually helps move those sick mice on a 60 percent oxidized omega-6 fatty acid diet more toward the normal mice but it's that's the metaphor you know it's like mm. oh if you're eating a shitty diet maybe resveratrol could help move you in the right direction. Well, just stop eating a shitty diet, you know? And then the other things they're not talking about are all the other collateral uh, damaging effects of these molecules. So, what, yeah, what, what, what would you say, like, uh, before, you, before you scare people away from eating any vegetable for the rest of life or plant, <laughs> what, what, kind of, what kind of advice would you give people to, uh, you know, how would they start paying attention to uh, how these compounds affect them and uh, what kind of changes to their diet they could make of are there any specifics that they should avoid 100% and uh, are there anything that they can keep 
in like a hormetic dose? Yeah, so um, yeah, I think it's a great question. Kind of like we talked about earlier, I would say if people are just really feeling good, then why change anything, you know? Like, but if you're not feeling good, and I would ask people to take a really honest inventory of the way they're feeling and you know, think about your mood, think about your libido, think about your sleep, think about your GI symptoms. Are you having gas, bloating, pain, diarrhea, constipation? Think about your skin. Think about your recovery from exercise. You know, if any of those are not awesome, then maybe you want to think about your diet. And if you want to start eliminating some plant foods, I think that something like a paleo diet is a good first step. I would argue that seeds are the most highly defended parts of plants. And I will further clarify that seeds are seeds, grains, legumes, and nuts. So even, you know, a lot of people feel like nuts and seeds are okay on a paleo diet, but I would say no, even nuts like almonds, they cause a lot of problems for people. They cause a lot of digestive issues. Um, I don't think that almonds are a healthy thing for people. So I think the first thing that people should cut out of their diet is seeds. And that includes all those four things. So seeds, grains, nuts, and legumes. And then I think that, you know, for a lot of people, I agree with the paleo diet's premise that dairy is often a problem. There are compounds in dairy like casein and whey, which can be immunologically triggering for many people. And there's also casomorphin, which is a, an opiate-like compound in milk that can change satiety mechanisms and mm. it's kind of addictive. So it's going to change our ability to know when we are full, casomorphin is. So this is a real issue. So I think cutting out seeds, the broad sense, and dairy would be a good first start. And then if you think about it, the next most defended part of a plant, I believe, is a sprout. Because a plant doesn't want a seed to get eaten, and then it doesn't want a sprout to get eaten either. So I would argue strongly against eating any sprout at anything, whether it's alfalfa sprouts, which are known to have a substance called cannabinoid in, in them, which are toxic. Uh, don't, eat a, don't eat any sprouts, whether it's broccoli sprouts, alfalfa sprouts. Like, don't eat sprouts. Those are very toxic. Those are, plants don't want those to get eaten because... They're, they're the most, they're like baby plants. And if you eat a little bit of the sprout, the whole thing's going to die. The next part, the next thing I would be arguing against would be the roots, stems, leaves of a plant, which is basically the rest of the whole plant, right? Mm -hmm. So at that point, we have to think about individual plant genuses that are more appear to be more toxic than others. And the one that appears to be the worst is the Solanaceae genus. That is the nightshade genus of mm -hmm. plants. This includes tomato, eggplant, bell peppers, and all the chili spices. So that family of plants has been shown to be pretty darn toxic, to triggers a lot of inflammation in people, probably by increasing intestinal permeability. If you look at that series of plants, they have been shown, solanaceae plants have been shown in cell culture to increase or decrease, excuse me, the transepithelial electrical resistance, which is a surrogate marker it's sort of our cell culture model of leaky gut you know mm -hmm. so they have been shown in cell culture to produce changes consistent with leaky gut just like so tomato eggplant spices so a lot of people want to do like tabasco sauce and ketchup or bell peppers a lot of people love spicy food i feel strongly that spicy food is going to be a problem for you you know it's going to create le leaky gut which is strongly connected in you know in terms of hypotheses, this is one of the things that people feel like is the proximate event. The first event uh, to leaky, to in autoimmunity is that the gut becomes leaky, the, the epithelial junctions open in the gut, and the antigens from the gut cross the, cross the um, epithelium. 
can go into the lamina propria, which is the space behind the GI epithelium where all of the immune system is centered. And that can create these immunologic reactions. So you, I think that many people would disagree with the notion, many people, very few people would disagree with the notion that you do not want leaky gut. So <laughs> things that have been shown in cell culture to create leaky gut, I would avoid those strongly. And one of those are this Solanaceae family of vegetables. The next family of vegetables that I would recommend would be the brass that I would recommend avoiding would be the brassicate vegetables. <laughs> so this is all of these compounds with the glucosinolates, you know. So that would probably be the next family. That's the kale, the collard, the Brussels sprouts, the broccoli. I think that family is fairly toxic as well. And then you know, going from there, I, and then the I should also add that in the Solanaceae family is white potatoes. Mm -hmm. um, which I think most people would see that's pretty toxic. And so I think if people do that, they're going to get a lot of maybe toxic things out of their diet. And then if they wanted to go further, they could just eliminate all plants because it seems that people do react to almost everything. There are, there are known toxic compounds in citrus vegetable, in citrus fruit. You know, these are the sorolins in limes and oranges. And some people can't eat these because they create real photosensitivity on the skin. And so there's, you know, toxins in almost everything. And then we get to the realm of fruit. And people will say, oh, fruit is okay. Well, yeah, generally fruit doesn't have toxins in it in the same way, but fruit does have fructose. And mm. if anyone is familiar with the molecular mechanisms around fructose, they'll, they'll know that fructose has been suggested pretty strongly to cause insulin resistance by itself. So fructose is a five carbon sugar, glucose is a six carbon sugar. And there's, you know, we use fructose in our own metabolism, but there's not a lot of fructose in animal foods. Fructose is something that occurs exclusively in the animal kingdom, excuse me, in the plant kingdom. Um, and we know that in the brain and the level of the liver, it's doing some things that are, seem to trigger insulin resistance, especially in high doses. So I would caution people against excess fructose, whether that's from honey or fruit. I'm not saying you can't eat any, but we, the studies that have been done suggest that 20, 25 grams a day of fructose is right about the threshold at which you're definitely going to trigger some insulin resistance. And mm -hmm. that's not hard to obtain if you're eating fruit in a, in a daily basis, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that fruit is not entirely benign and I, I don't see fruit with a unique role in human, in human evolution. Yeah. I think that there are low fructose fruits um, like berries, you know, evolutionarily, if I'm walking through the forest and I see a bush with a bunch of blackberries on it, I might eat them, but they're only going to be available a certain time of the year for a short amount of time, and yeah. they're not going to stay good for very long if I pick them. And so we may have had some exposure to fruit. Whether or not that has any net benefit is questionable, but it would have been very limited for short amounts of time. We would not have eaten fruit year-round, you know? Mm -hmm. You would not have been eating blackberries in Estonia in January. For sure. <laughs> I don't even know unless, you unless you ferment them and, uh, or make yeah, some, yeah. freeze them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, hopefully that's a helpful sort of, uh, mm. you know, progression for people. And then I, like we talked about earlier, I think if people want to, the next step would probably be thinking about macronutrients and leveraging all of the mechanisms around macronutrients and carbohydrate limitation for control of mTOR and, you know, activation of AM kinase yeah. and longevity mechanisms. And if, if people, I'm sure if people are listening to this and they're following you, they have experimented with ketosis, but if people have not experimented with ketosis, when the human brain runs on ketones, it feels different than a human brain running on glucose, sure. you know? Yeah. So that's a real benefit there. And I think that, you know, like I'm saying, I think that for some people, a carnivorous diet is really going to be the best way to achieve optimal health if they are exquisitely sensitive to plants. Mm -hmm. A lot of people might be able to tolerate some plants, but 
And the question is, is there any real net benefit or is it just a net loss? But I accept that humans are facultative carnivores, or that would be my theory, rather than omnivores. And that if people want to eat plants from time to time for social reasons or it's just part of their life, that's fine. If they get enjoyment from it. But they need to know that there may be some toxins in those plants and try and uh, put that into the whole, the whole equation of their life, you know? Mm. And yeah, the idea, the premise that for some people, there may be such a strong autoimmune connection with plants and that completely mm. eliminating them, that's a pretty radical concept. Yeah, I think like sometimes the net net benefit can also be like psychological and yes. the peace of mind that you're not yeah. going to be worried about uh, being uh, hospitalized if you get exposed to gluten accidentally or something that that you feel that okay I'm able to handle it because it's not that frequent and it's it's like uh, not not a consistent thing in my diet and if I do get exposed to it then it's not going to wipe me out and that's another like one of those benefits that can simply help the person to kind of uh, maintain like longevity just because of lowering stress and so on. So, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. And we know that community is important for longevity and, for you know, sure. family and, you know, a carnivorous diet for many people will be so extreme that it may interfere with those mechanisms. And so I wouldn't want to advocate that. So I think that, you know, there is probably some flexibility about which plants and if we're, you know, I, I think that maybe the other thing I would add um, is that, uh, you know, there, if we look at the least, toxic plants that I can imagine are probably the non, the non sweet fruits. And mm -hmm. what am I talking about? I'm thinking about avocado, you know, right. it's a non sweet fruit. It's not a, it's a fruit, but it's not sweet or like a cucumber, mm -hmm. for instance, you know, that's a fruit, but it's not very sweet or like a squash. Mm -hmm. Now a squash is pretty starchy and it's not going to be ideal for ketosis. But I don't think that, you know, if you, if you look at a squash or a, or a cucumber, most of the lectins are in the skin and the seeds. And if you remove the skin and the seeds, many people don't eat the skin and the seeds of, of a squash, but people might eat the seeds of a cucumber. But if you remove the skin and the seeds of a cucumber, you can get something that doesn't, probably doesn't have a lot of lectins and it's non-sweet and it's a fruit and it's plants. And, you know, there are ways to do it. But I would say non-sweet fruits, um, yeah, like squash or cucumber or, or avocado are probably pretty benign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, they can and, trigger some people. Yeah, and if anything, then people should at least start to pay attention to how certain foods can affect them and yeah. uh, how does how does it change their well-being and uh, health in general. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a good point to start wrapping up the podcast as well. And really, yeah, enjoyed, yeah. really enjoyed talking with you. And there's yeah, yeah, indeed a lot of different rabbit holes we could have gone into. Yep. Uh, with you know these phytonutrients, uh, polyphenols, so and many, and so on. So and yeah. <laughs> So maybe, maybe we can do like a, a future podcast episode again. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, but before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your work? So if people, um, I have a private functional medicine practice in the States and I see people from all over the world. So if, you know, if people are seeing us in Europe or wherever, they can email me at paulsaladinomd at gmail.com. I'm sure this will be in the show notes, but that's mm -hmm. Paul. My last name is S-A-L-A-D-I-N-O-M-D at gmail.com. They can email me there if they'd like to work with me um, as a functional medicine practitioner. Um, they can also find me at my website, which is paulsaladinomd.com. Um, I'm on Instagram at, at paulsaladinomd. I'm on YouTube. The channel is paulsaladinomd. And I'm on uh, Twitter at mdsaladino. Those are probably all the outlets mm. uh, people can reach me at probably if they really want to get in touch with me the best way is through email um but they can i have a lot of work on instagram and i'm 
constantly adding videos to my YouTube channel. So those are probably the best, the mm. best uh, platforms to connect with me. Nice, nice. And my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Oh, man. I think that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go left when people are expecting me to go right here and say that it was uh, meditation. And um, I think that, um, you know, as my life becomes more busy, and as this medical practice grows, and as, you know, I'm doing more of these podcasts and carnivorous things and talking to people about autoimmunity and diet, uh, it's, I think that in my life, I wish that I had done more meditation sooner. You know, I think mm, that, yeah. um, I think that the, the, our brains are so powerful and our mind is so powerful and that for me and for most people, I think that beginning the day with a meditation practice is probably super important. And so I wish I had done that sooner and more um, as well. But, you know, I think meditation is hugely important as well. So I think for me, that's been a crucial sort of linchpin, a crux of the whole thing. Obviously, I'm going to say I think diet is important and I wish I'd thought about my diet earlier. I wish I'd been eating more like this from all my life, but I do think meditation is critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really one of those life-changing habits. I think uh, everyone should you know, practice at least in some shape. But yeah, th thanks, Paul, for coming to the podcast and yeah. uh, really looking forward to more research in this field with ketosis and carnivore diets as well. So yeah, so, I, I appreciate exci that. exciting times. <laughs> it's super exciting. And I appreciate the work that you've done and having me on. And it's great to talk to someone who has such a great understanding of autophagy and these molecular mechanisms. And we could get into some of the details of mTOR. I hope that this wasn't too technical for people, but they... They can certainly, you know, uh, look at your work and look at my work if they need more details. But I think these are the conversations that are going to need to be happening. And um, I, I'm glad it's helpful for people. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, yeah exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, I'll see you around in the future. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, and Hormone podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.